after more than a year of living with this pandemic, we have finally seen some hope on the horizon. New vaccines are getting approved. The number of people vaccinated is rising. Someone told me who's been vaccinated just today, I'm starting to hug people. Stimulus checks are arriving, providing adequate money for food, housing, or medical bills. Students are returning to school in person, hopefully improving grade level standards. The COVID relief bill brought aid to the neediest among us. And I am so grateful for all the good work that has been done to bring us to this point, truly. I just know that that doesn't mean all our problems are solved. I know we need so much more help than this. Yes, we need vaccines. Yes, people need assistance. But we also need compassion. We need the ability to understand one another. We need healing from our divisions, especially given the polarization that exists now. We need power to overcome addictions. We need hope that broken relationships can be restored. We need redirection of our desires that veer off track even slightly. We need guidance as we restructure our time and our lives in search of deeper meaning as we come out of this season. Is there any help on the way for that? Is there any relief package on the table for that? I have good news for you. Real help is not only on the way. Real help has come. And not just COVID relief, real once and for all relief. It hasn't come in a shot, or in a bill, or in a payment. It's come in a person, specifically in a person's sacrifice on a cross some 2,000 years ago. Now, I know you've heard this story before, but it's Sunday of Holy Week. We tell this story every year because it's so important. It's so defining for our lives, and yet we can become so familiar with it that it doesn't impact our daily lives. And that's kind of sad, because when that happens, we end up missing out on the help that has been issued to us. And I'm not sure that's the life you or I want to live. And so today, I want us to look once again at what really happened at Jesus' death. Why did Jesus die? In doing so, my goal is that we understand the help and the hope it provides for you and I this Easter. Today, we're continuing our series on the book of Mark, which we've titled The Peter Interviews, since Mark relied heavily on the disciple Peter as a primary source for his writing. Our passage is Mark 15, 1 to 15, where Jesus is on trial before Pilate, the Roman governor. Just after this, he will be crucified. Now, before we look at the passage, I want to remind us of three possible explanations for what really happened that first Good Friday, because I think it will help us understand this passage more. First, maybe what we see happening when Jesus dies on the cross is a guilty man getting a just punishment for crimes he committed. As I think our passage will show, this seems the least likely option. Even Pilate, the Roman governor, known for his hatred of the Jews, concludes Jesus is innocent. Historians note that that's saying something, given Pilate's usual brutality. 
So let's say Jesus is innocent of the crimes he's accused of. Maybe then he's a victim of a shrewd and corrupt system of religious leaders and a bloodthirsty crowd. This is the second possible explanation. Jesus is innocent, but weak. He's a pawn. If you heard my message a couple of weeks ago, when Jesus was on trial before the religious leaders, I hope I made it clear this isn't the case either. So the only other legitimate option here is that Jesus was innocent, but strong. Meaning he did not get beat by the system, but rather he had a very deliberate purpose for why he died. And in fact, when we look at the whole book of Mark, that is very clearly Mark's intent. This is the first gospel or biography of Jesus recorded. Mark wants it to be abundantly clear right from the moment this movement gets off the ground that Jesus dies as a willing sacrifice. Follow along with me in Mark chapter 15, verses 1 to 15, to see how Mark communicates this. I'm going to read a few verses at a time, make some comments along the way, and then we'll pull it together at the end for what this means for us to receive relief and help in our time of need. Mark 15, verse 1. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders and teachers of the law, that's Sanhedrin, or Jewish religious court, remember, made their plans. So they bound Jesus, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate. Now this phrase, made their plans, is a loaded term. Let me explain. Remember, under Roman rule, Jewish leaders had some autonomy, but they didn't have the authority to execute capital punishment. So if they wanted Jesus dead, they would need the Roman authority, in this case the governor of the area, Pilate, to sign off on that. Now recall how unfair that trial before the Jewish religious leaders was. It was in the middle of the night, in the home of the high priest rather than in the temple, had numerous false witnesses, uncorroborated testimony, to name just a few. And the accusation made is, are you the Messiah? When Jesus responds, I am, he is charged with blasphemy. But blasphemy against God, claiming to be God, is the kind of thing that matters very much to the religious leaders, but not to Roman pagan officials. Good prosecutors know how to pick just the right charge in order to get a successful conviction. Aspiring politicians, take note, this is brilliant. Watch how the Jewish leaders recast the indictment into something else Pilate or Rome would actually care about. Verses 2 to 5. Are you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate. You have said so, Jesus replied. The chief priests accused him of many things. So again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of? But Jesus still made no reply, and Pilate was amazed. Now, Luke's account of this passage expands on the accused him of many things by listing three charges. And they began to accuse him, saying, one, we have found this man subverting our nation. Two, he opposes payment of taxes to Caesar. And three, claims to be Messiah, a king. Now, to be clear, Jesus did have large crowds following him, but he never encouraged them to turn against Rome. 
As for taxes, Luke records an incident where Jesus specifically says to pay taxes. Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, give to God what is God's. But it's this last line, claims to be Messiah a king. That is the linchpin for us in understanding what the Jewish leaders, religious leaders did. How they transposed this charge of blasphemy into a threat of treason. Messiah is a religious term, largely claiming one as equal with God. But because of the images evoked by it, the secularized form of Messiah was king of the Jews. See, the Messiah prophesied about in the Jewish sacred text did speak of a king who would come. But he was never a violent military king. Pilate, pagan that he is, doesn't know that. He hears king of the Jews, and that catches his attention. A would-be king spelt trouble for Pilate. Rome has a king, emperor, Caesar, and anybody seeking to overthrow him is guilty of treason. So Pilate begins his questioning, getting right down to business. Are you the king of the Jews? Now, Jesus' ambivalent response in verse 2 is also brilliant. You have said so. It is a yes and a no. Jesus is not denying the title, but he is also distancing himself from the interpretation Pilate and the religious leaders have given to it. Jesus is a king by virtue of him being Messiah, but he is not the kind of king Pilate needs to worry about. The implications given by this secular de designation, king of the Jews, is false. Messiah king, as in sent by God and equal with God to bring in a new kingdom of love, yes. King of the Jews king, as in political revolutionary with military might to stir up trouble and disrupt the peace, no. And in the course of his interrogation, Pilate marvels at this man who doesn't defend himself. As Roman governor, he's witnessed a lot of revolts. This man before him doesn't seem to fit the description of a rebel or a right-wing nationalist. He doesn't seem to be a disturber of the peace. Watch the brilliance of Mark's storytelling here. Verse 6. Now, it was the custom at the festival, that is, the Passover, the week following it, after it, where the Jewish people remembered their freedom from captivity to Egypt, to release a prisoner whom the people requested. Roman law had a provision for setting prisoners free, and it could occur in one of two ways. One, release a prisoner not yet condemned, or two, release one already condemned. Pilate's going to hope for the former. The crowd is going to choose the latter. A man named Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who'd committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Now, we don't actually know what uprising Mark is referencing, but he assumes his readers know, given how significant it was. Many revolts like this were not uncommon, and this is, in fact, why Pilate is in Jerusalem rather than in his main palace on the coast. Every year at Passover, he came into Jerusalem to keep the peace, discourage riots since the population of Jerusalem swelled by about 50,000 during Passover. So here's Barabbas, 
a true rebel in prison for treason. He's instigated the uprising, incited violence, even murdered people. It's very likely the two thieves crucified on either side of Jesus were Barabbas' followers. Jesus couldn't be more opposite. Remember his arrest? Not only does he go peacefully, but when one of his followers swipes off the ear of his soldier, Jesus forbids the use of force, stoops down, reattaches the ear. Jesus is no violent insurrectionist. And Pilate, who's seen a lot of men on trial for treason over the years, knows it. He can tell the religious leaders don't have it out for Jesus because they're loyal to Rome. They're jealous. Jesus is popular with the crowds and they don't like it. They disagree with Jesus' theology. But Pilate makes a terrible miscalculation. He underestimates the determination of the religious leaders as well as the level of influence they would have over the crowd. Verses 9 to 11. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? Asked Pilate, knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priests had handed Jesus over to him. But the chief priests stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. Pilate is hoping the crowd is going to do the heavy lifting for him. He's a politician. He's got to cater to his constituents. He's hoping that the crowd who just witnessed the uprising and Barabbas' murderous acts will look at Jesus and Barabbas and choose Jesus for release. In fact, three times Pilate says Jesus is innocent and should be released, or if they won't agree to that, at least punished less severely. First, in verse 9, how about I release Jesus to you, yeah? Second, in verse 12, what shall I do then with the one you call king of the Jews? Pilate asked them. He's looking for an out. Crucify him, they shouted. And third, in verse 14, why? What crime has he committed? Asked Pilate. If Barabbas is a true rebel or insurrectionist, then Pilate is a true politician. Clearly, he views Jesus as innocent and that this punishment does not fit the crime. But he wouldn't be the first leader to listen to his constituents rather than his conscience. The pressure's too great. He's abdicated the power of decision from himself to the people. And verse 14, but they shouted all the louder, crucify him. Wanting to satisfy the crowd, Pilate released Barabbas to them. He had Jesus flogged and handed him over to be crucified. Many scholars think Pilate's hesitation to convict Jesus is evident even in this last move. A flogging was a gruesome way of torturing criminals. It involved whipping the accused with long strips of leather that had pieces of bone and metal embedded on the ends. Now, Romans use this in one of two ways. Either as a preliminary before execution, after there had been a capital sentence, or as an independent punishment. Notice Pilate flogs Jesus before sentencing him to crucifixion. He's hoping that people will be satisfied with this beating and drop the whole crucifixion idea. Mark is taking pains to show that even brutal, anti-Semitic Pilate thinks Jesus is innocent. So what happened at Jesus' death? 
doesn't seem to be a guilty person getting punished justly. What about the second view I suggested at the start? That Jesus is innocent, just weak, bested by shrewd religious leaders and weak politicians. If you read all of Mark's book, I hope someday you will, you'll see that this isn't his view either. Notice how this passage is bookended with the phrase, handed him over or delivered in verses 1 and 15. Now, I know that sounds passive, something that happens to Jesus. But that doesn't mean it takes Jesus by surprise or even that he isn't in control. In fact, Jesus himself has used this word at least three times. And each time, it's when he predicts his death to his disciples. Look at these verses and tell me if this doesn't sound familiar. You can read those. And look at this last one because this is the most specific. Mark 10, 33 to 34. The Son of Man will be delivered or handed over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to Gentiles. That's Romans, i.e. Pilate, who will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him. If you read just past the verses we read today, you're going to see the spitting and mocking part fulfilled. This is what's happening. This is what's going on before our very eyes. Mark elaborates on this point a few verses later by summing up Jesus' whole purpose. The Son of Man came to give his life as a ransom for many. Mark is saying it's the third option. It's not that Jesus was guilty. Contrast him with Barabbas. It's not that he was innocent and got outwitted. Remember that coy, ambiguous response when Jesus is asked if he's the king of the Jews? It's that he was innocent, but he had a purpose. This was his destiny to exchange his life for ours, to ransom us. We, the guilty like Barabbas, get free. We, the imprisoned, stuck, out of options, deserving justice, and then suddenly the prison door is opened. We're free to go. Someone has paid our debt. Someone else exchanges his life for ours, even though he is innocent. This is the message of the cross. He took my place. Because Jesus, the sinless Messiah, died, we don't have to. We can be forgiven. We can be set free from all that binds us and imprisons us. We can experience life even after we die, as Jesus himself did. We can be in relationship with God as Jesus was and is. All the deep help and relief we really need is available through Jesus. Receiving a clean slate despite our guilt, choosing to forgive those who have hurt us, freedom from the prisons of thought and behavior patterns that enslave us, and hope that death will not have the last word. This Holy Week, whether for the first time or the hundredth time, receive this gift Jesus offers us to be forgiven, cleansed, given a fresh start, to receive life, to receive power over what feels powerless. Help has come. Our relief package has been delivered, handed over to us. 
Let us say thank you to him for taking our place. Let us give him the honor and glory that is due him for offering himself as a willing sacrifice. And let us give him the submission of our lives fitting only for a king, for that is who he is. Let's pray. Oh, Jesus, we see once again in this so familiar passage. You were innocent, but you were not out of control. You were a willing sacrifice on our behalf, a ransom for us that we might be set free from our prisons, that we might be forgiven of our murderous insurrectionist acts, that we might experience life with you, so let it be. Holy Spirit, now in each one of us, we ask for you to give us a fresh start. Help us to see you clearly. Help us to worship you and give our lives to you that others may see who you are, Messiah and King. And we long for you to come and take up your throne. Give us hope and patience in the meantime as we wait. In Jesus' name, amen.